0: The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production.
1: about face decisions waver over whether to impeach the state Supreme Court's newest justice, and heated debate at the Capitol ensues over bills that will impact people who are transgender. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Tonight on Here and Now, senior political reporter Zach Schultz has the latest on threats to impeach Justice Janet Protasiewicz. Then a look at gender-affirming care from a medical point of view. Scholars from a federal program challenge calls to defund diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. And the next installment of Wisconsin in Black and White, The Racial Wealth Gap. It's Here and Now for October 13th. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. We begin tonight with major movement in an important case affecting voters across the state. The lawsuit over Wisconsin's current legislative boundary maps is now being fast-tracked in the Wisconsin Supreme Court with oral arguments set for November. That's after liberal justice Janet Protasiewicz declined to recuse or step aside from the case and the liberal majority on the court ruled to take up the redistricting lawsuit. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss had moved to pursue impeaching Protusiewicz over statements she made during her campaign that the legislative maps are rigged and unfair. In her decision to reject recusing, Janet Protusiewicz wrote... No other justice has decided that they must recuse, even though their prior writings, including from just last year, might indicate firm preconceptions of certain issues in this action. And if prejudgment is the concern, she wrote, their writings are just as relevant as my campaign remarks. Voss had asked former conservative justices whether impeaching Protisiewicz was possible. One of them, David Prosser, Told the Speaker not to try, saying, quote, Impeachment is so serious, severe, and rare that it should not be considered unless the subject has committed a crime or the subject has committed indisputable corrupt conduct while in office. In turn, Robin Voss released a statement on the matter saying, Justice Protosewicz should have recused herself. We think the United States Supreme Court precedent compels her recusal, and the United States Supreme Court will have the last word here. Conservative Justice Rebecca Bradley also has her eye on the persuasion of the nation's high court. In her dissent over the Wisconsin Supreme Court taking up the redistricting lawsuit, Bradley wrote, Protosawitz's failure to recuse from this case, despite her blatant bias, should be reviewed by the United States Supreme Court before Wisconsin taxpayers are forced to foot the bill for a redistricting do-over. Speaker Voss says moving to impeach Justice Protosewitz is not off the table. Here to talk more about this, senior political reporter Zach Schultz at the Capitol. And hi, Zach. Hey, Fred. So now uh, Voss is tying possible impeachment to how she rules on the case that she did not recuse herself from, and saying that the U.S. Supreme Court could be the decider over all of this. As we heard from Justice Rebecca Bradley, he's not alone in wanting this to go all the way up.
2: Well, at this point, they're really, that's the only place they can go because the Wisconsin Supreme Court is controlled by liberals who would obviously not rule in favor and would support Janet Protasiewicz in her recusal decision. So they have to go to the U.S. Supreme Court either to overrule her decision not to recuse or to overrule any decision that would come down from the majority in the Supreme Court in Wisconsin about creating new redistricting maps. After all, it was the U.S. Supreme Court last time who kicked the original case back to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which then put in place those conservative maps that we are under. Remember, the first time around, the Supreme Court with Justice Hagedorn sided with Governor Evers and chose the Democratic maps until the U.S. Supreme Court said no.
1: So, how surprising uh, was it that former Justice Prosser and another conservative uh, former justice told Voss that there should be no effort to impeach Protosewitz?
2: Well, these are conservatives from the Supreme Court, but they're still former members of the Supreme Court. So it's not surprising they would try and read the law in its plain language. And it clearly talks about. CONTEMPT IN OFFICE, and CORRUPT CONDUCT IN OFFICE, AND ALL of THESE COMMENTS, ALL THESE ACTIONS CAME ON THE CAMPAIGN TRAIL BEFORE JANET PROTESAWICZ WAS JUSTICE PROTESAWICZ. SO IN THAT SENSE, IT'S PRETTY CLEAR THAT THAT'S HOW IT SHOULD HAVE BEEN READ. IF YOU'RE A CYNIC, YOU WOULD ARGUE, WELL, YOU KNOW, YOU COULD ALWAYS ASSUME YOU CAN FIND ANY JUSTICE SOMEWHERE TO TRY AND SAY WHAT YOU WANTED TO SAY. SO I THINK YOU COULD ALSO READ INTO THAT THAT Speaker Voss simply doesn't have the votes right now in the assembly to impeach, if he wanted to, and that he would need support from outside places like former justices to say, yes, you should do this, in order to bring the rest of his caucus along.
1: There was also the argument that Protossiewicz should step aside because she got campaign contributions from the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. But the party isn't a party in the case. Uh, d- does that hold up in terms of uh, impeachment?
2: Well, in terms of impeachment, uh, that's unclear. That was part of the campaign that wasn't part of her time in office, so it shouldn't affect impeachment. But it was something that she spoke to in her recusal, and her decision not to recuse from these cases, and where she said the amount of money that was contributed by a non-party to a case that wasn't before her at the time the money was contributed should have no impact on her ability to judge this case. She pointed to numerous other candidates, former conservatives on the Supreme Court, who have received large amounts of proportional amounts of campaign finance funding from conservatives Conservative or liberal interest groups in saying that they've all been influenced by this, but no one else is recused, so she shouldn't have to either.
1: So, what was Justice Protozawicz referring to when she said prior writings of other justices might indicate firm preconceptions on the redistricting issue?
2: Well, remember, redistricting was just before this court in the last session, and everyone wrote on this. They wrote their own dissents. They wrote the majority opinion. So everyone is on the record in terms of how they did decide this case. Now, these appeals are based on slightly different issues that they say weren't addressed at this time. The conservatives say, well, that's exactly why we don't need to take this. We just decided it. This is the precedent we should be going on until 10 years from now. And the liberals on the court are saying, no, this is something we can look at. It's a new angle. Of course, it helps when they have the majority so they can say that. But everyone wrote and stated where they stand on a lot of these issues. So that could be the basis of preconceptions, but that's also why the Supreme Court typically doesn't decide the same case multiple sessions in a row. Once they decide it, it stands, unless there's a new angle, which is what these groups are saying is the reason why the court should take this issue up now.
1: Uh, ba- back to this issue of recusal, with just about a half a minute left. What happens if uh, Janet Protasiewicz was compelled, in the end, by the high court uh, to recuse?
2: Well, if she's not on it, then there's only six justices left. There's split three-three. Justice Hagedorn would be a swing vote, but we saw from his dissent in the decision to take the case that he doesn't think the court needs to revisit this issue. So, more likely than not, the issue would be deadlocked and, and nothing would happen.
1: All right. Zach Schultz, thanks a lot. Thank you, Fred. Impassioned testimony at the Capitol in recent weeks culminated in heated Assembly floor debate over legislation targeting transgender children. One of the bills prohibits minors from receiving gender-affirming medical care in the form of hormone treatments or surgery. The Republican-authored legislation sparked these words from Assembly Speaker Robin Voss.
3: So just because some people in science today say that this is settled That we are going to mutilate children before we allow them to get a tattoo before they decide on many things that we say as a society they cannot decide and for all of you who have sponsored the bill to say we need to have 17 year olds treated as children because they can't be admitted to adult court because their brains aren't formulated give me a break so you say that kids aren't old enough to know right and wrong when they commit a crime But somehow, permanent bodily changes, that, when you're three years old, you you got it all figured out.
1: This is baloney. To hear from a medical point of view, we speak with Bill Keaton, Chief Advocacy Officer at Vivant Health, a clinic that focuses on serving LGBTQ clients. And Bill, thanks very much for being here.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So as to the speaker's comment that children as young as three are undergoing permanent bodily changes, is that accurate?
0: to the best of my knowledge I've not heard of any instances where uh, someone that young has been um, uh, in a position where they've had uh, whether it's gender reassignment surgery or um, taking things like hormones or puberty blockers to to treat gender dysphoria like what's being discussed today.
1: What does medically recognized gender affirming care involve for children under the age of 18?
0: You know it involves a lot of different components. Uh, probably first and foremost is the really intentional engagement of that individual's parents um, with a team of providers who are really looking at what is in the best interest of the health and well-being of that child. Uh, that's going to include things like Talk therapy and, and traditional mental health. It might include things like psychiatry, um, and if the team comes together, the parent or parents in this case um, come together with the team of providers and their child to determine that something like gender reassignment surgery um, is necessary. Then that's that's the course of treatment that's going to be uh, that's going to be followed and sought out. There's going to be a lot of consultation, a lot of discussion, a lot of education of the parent and the child about what this is going to mean for that individual for the rest of their lives um and it's not the it's not the standard course it's or I shouldn't say it's not the standard course it's not the only course um, there are a number of different uh, uh approaches to helping support folks who are living with um, um, not feeling like their physical body matches how they feel about themselves
1: but in terms of that gender reassignment surgery I mean is that something that happens you know uh in young teenagers uh, or even older ones or is it generally something that would be when they are adults?
0: The research I've seen on this and the literature that I've seen on this really lends itself to the understanding that this is something that uh, happens later on in an individual's life. I think the medical community providers in this space really recognize that, that they are taking a significant step. Uh, with this patient and they want to make sure that they're they're in a position to make that uh, uh, decision fully from a well-informed position
1: but this kind of care um, would include puberty blocking drugs or hormones um, and and if so at at what age and under again, what conditions uh, would these be afforded?
0: Well, there's a number of different approaches, and it's, it's individualized for, for each one of the, the patients. There's no standard on this day, after this many rounds of treatment, we're going to start treatment X, Y, or Z. Um, so is it, is it the same in every case? It, the answer is no. This, this sort of care is, is very narrowly tailored and uh, individualized for the, for the individual who's seeking it.
1: Because, what kind of care and caution do healthcare providers enter into with children and their parents as they go through this course of treatment?
0: There are a lot of um, conversations that need to happen, meaningful conversations about what does what does this mean for the patient. The um, the initiation of things like puberty blockers or hormone therapy, uh, those are not necessarily permanent. um, sort of approaches. They will change the individual's physiology in some ways so that it more closely represents how that individual uh, experiences their gender which is a internal almost psychological sort of thing. Um, And if that changes the ability to withdraw or stop uh, receiving that will have the impact of of, um, uh, bring that person's gender uh, expression back towards their physiological.
1: And so, in other words, um, those kinds of drugs uh, are reversible. Correct. Uh, wh- why does your health practice and others believe that it is injurious to prohibit gender affirming care for children um, and for them to wait until they're 18 to get that kind of care? Well.
0: I think if we look at something like gender dysphoria um, and and the folks who are seeking this out, it, it, it's not a cosmetic, it's not an aesthetic sort of approach, it's not a tattoo. Um, this is recognized treatment um, developed uh, with protocols um, developed by leading, leading providers in this space, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Medical Association, uh, and others. And the idea that someone is experiencing a condition that has... Um, treatments available for it that have been rigorously studied and proven to be effective and safe for that individual, to withhold that um, because of someone's age seems to be cruel to me in some ways. Um, That's where the injury comes in and we basically otherize and stigmatize folks and push them further to the margins of society.
1: Bill Keaton, thanks very much.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Governor Tony Evers says he will veto this bill and two others related to transgender sports restrictions. Also at the Capitol, Republicans could withhold pay raises for state employees over diversity and inclusion positions at the universities of Wisconsin. But federal dollars continue to fund a program offered at seven of the universities that helps underrepresented students navigate higher education. Here and Now reporter Aditi Debnath has more on that program's impact on the UW Oshkosh campus.
4: Originally when I went into McNair, I wanted to be a medical illustrator. Uh, I wanted to draw pictures for textbooks, uh, those posters you see in doctor's offices, because I really like to draw. But now I'm not trying to do that at all. Um, now I'm trying to get a PhD in uh, biotechnology.
5: Dominic Quente is a UW Oshkosh McNair scholar. He just completed the program's summer research internship, which culminates in a public presentation of his findings. McNair is really a one-stop shop for first-generation, underrepresented and low-income students. This federally funded scholarship program is deemed a success by those in it, even as Republicans in the legislature want to prohibit state-funded programs aimed at diversity and inclusion. The McNair program grants its scholars $4,000 to conduct their own research and receive one-on-one mentorship from a faculty member.
4: Research I'll be presenting today is
5: on cyanobacteria in Lake Winnebago. Brittany Dupree also didn't know much about graduate school before becoming a McNair scholar. This summer I went on more the macro
3: scale and I was looking at prairie restorations and I assessed the
5: success of a prairie restoration that's right around central Wisconsin. The program's director, Cordelia Bolas, says McNair is part of a pipeline of programs that help students from disadvantaged backgrounds be successful in college. It has a long track record of huge success. It has bipartisan support in Washington. Bolas is referring to federal government funding designated to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in education. Of the approximately 200 students that have been gone through our program in the last 16 years, of them are either in graduate school or have completed graduate school and are in careers. This year, UW Oshkosh will receive more than 260,000 federal dollars for McNair and is one of seven universities in Wisconsin that offers the program. They're important because they enrich the university. Program coordinator at UW Oshkosh, Dr. Belinda Pinkston advises McNair scholars through each step of the program. We make a concerted effort
1: to focus on providing resources for our scholars and providing an environment in which they feel supported and which they feel seen and heard. Beyond
5: that, programs like McNair give students the space to connect with peers that have similar experiences and inspire the next generation.
1: I think we
4: do a a good job kind of of representing what education can do for people and where it can lead.
5: His mother, Blanca Juarez, traveled from the Fox Cities to Oshkosh to see his presentation. I'm a really, really proud mama, because I know he's doing with his heart too. He really wants to do it. He wants to clean the lake, and hopefully other students continue with this program with this project that they chose to start this summer. Dr. Pinkston, who once was a first-generation college student, says promoting diversity in higher education is just as beneficial to a community as it is to each student. So it's not just intrinsic, what am I going to get out of this? It's about how can I give back?
1: And we help cultivate that desire in them to give back.
5: For Brittany Dupree and her mother, McNair really is about enabling the next generation. I am a person about school. I would, would support her in any way. I am so proud of her and what she's achieved so far. For Here and Now, I'm Aditi Debnath in Oshkosh.
1: Tonight, we continue our series of special reports on race with Wisconsin in Black and White in partnership with the Nehemiah Center for Urban Leadership Development. Last week, we looked at the history of racially restrictive covenants and redlining, which forced black people into old, dilapidated housing. Tonight, the legacy of urban renewal programs and the protests they sparked for fair housing. Here's reporter Nathan Denzine with Wisconsin in Black and White, Racial Wealth Gap.
3: You are suffering now. What do you want to do about it now?
2: What are you going to do about it now? How many homes do you
4: have available now? For- Bulldozers rolled into Milwaukee in the 1960s, leveling black neighborhoods in the name of urban renewal. The projects often raised successful black neighborhoods, like Bronzeville in downtown Milwaukee.
1: Well, you had homes with families in... And- and with kids and we were all just playing around.
4: Teresa Garrison has lived in the Bronzeville community for 70 years.
1: So I'd say it was family oriented and everybody knew everybody.
4: Bronzeville enjoyed a flourishing business district in the early 1960s, from banks to movie theaters to grocery stores.
1: It was just a booming
4: shopping center. But in the mid 1960s, the federal government started giving grants for cities to update infrastructure. The goal of urban renewal was to construct new housing and modern interstates. Those projects often destroyed black neighborhoods in the process.
1: Fred Durer and his family have lived in this house for eight years, but they live in the K3 urban renewal area and they have to move now. There are 13 of them and they are black and poor, so they won't be able to find a decent home on their own. As far as urban renewal, I'll just say it was urban tragedies.
4: In just eight years, between 1960 and 1968, more than 7,500 homes and businesses were demolished in Milwaukee. Interstate 43 was the largest and most visible urban renewal project in Milwaukee and was built directly through Bronzeville. The addition of I-43 decimated the neighborhood. Friendships that were very close to having a family connection were disrupted and destroyed and a lot of families never recovered. Elmer Moore Jr. and Rennell Washington play critical roles in the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority. What does that do to everyone else's sense of security? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to sleep that night thinking, what are they gonna do to my home next? Everybody deserves to have a house.
1: When they start you know, tearing the community apart, there was nothing to do. You didn't have anything.
4: The black community was now facing three forms of discrimination at once. Restrictive covenants prohibited them from living in certain areas. Redlining prevented them from getting mortgages and urban renewal destroyed their neighborhoods.
3: Black households that were displaced by highways and urban renewal had limited housing options in the city because of discrimination and exclusionary zoning in the suburbs.
4: Kurt Paulson is a historian of urban planning at UW-Madison who says decades of discrimination built to massive protest.
3: No surprise that you get significant political pushback and rebellion amongst African-Americans in disinvested neighborhoods.
1: We tend to think about the civil rights movement like the institution of slavery as something that is uniquely Southern, and it was not.
4: Dr. Christy Clark Pujara, a UW-Madison history professor, also works with the Madison organization, Nehemiah. She's an instructor in its Justified Anger, Black History for a New Day course. The nine-week course teaches the community about race, history, and justice.
1: You can just look at the civil rights struggle for open housing, for instance, in Milwaukee.
4: The pushback in Milwaukee started in the 1960s when Vell Phillips was elected to the city council. Phillips was both the first woman and the first black person elected to a city office. She led the charge to desegregate Milwaukee's housing.
5: These cats are just too dumb,
3: just too dumb to know when they have something going for them. And they argued in favor of reinvestment in black neighborhoods, but also what we today would call fair housing or open housing. Fair
4: housing is the idea that discrimination of any kind in the sale or rental of housing should be prohibited. When Phillips first introduced her fair housing ordinance in 1962, the rest of the council overwhelmingly rejected it.
3: It was one of the first proposed in the country, and it went down to defeat 18 to one. Only Vel Phillips voted for it.
5: Y'all have done this over 200 years, telling us what felt good for us,
3: Over the next four years,
4: the ordinance was shot down four more times, each time by the 18 to one margin. By the summer of 1967, Milwaukee reached its boiling point. A group of young black activists decided to rally their community around a common goal, their mindset. We're going to march and demand that the
1: local government, the city of Milwaukee passes a fair housing ordinance that has some teeth to it.
4: Reggie Jackson is a community leader in Milwaukee.
1: So they marched for 200 consecutive days. The first two days they marched, they were met crossing this bridge in Milwaukee called the Sixth Street Viaduct, which separated the north side from the south side. They were met by an angry crowd of thousands of white people throwing bricks and bottles and bags of feces. Despite the
4: angry white crowds, protesters kept up the pressure.
1: Anybody that knows anything about the weather in Milwaukee. Marching in December, January, February, when it's bitterly cold, snow, blizzards, all that stuff, ice storms, they continue to march.
4: Protests continued until March 1968. Less than a month later, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis. As unrest grew after the murder of Dr. King, the federal government felt pressure to pass an open housing law.
3: The federal government finally
1: passed the Federal Fair Housing Act a week after Dr. King's assassination.
3: But that's after 40 years of segregation. And a law prohibiting discrimination does not address the deep structure of segregation that was already built into the urban landscape.
4: As an expert on the deep and lasting scars of discrimination and forced segregation, Clark Pujara says understanding that past is critical to working towards a better future.
1: So now we're in a situation where things are very lopsided but we can address them as a society if we choose to.
4: For Here and Now, I'm Nathan Denzine.
1: This reporting launched with a one-hour Wisconsin in Black and White primetime special from special projects journalist Merv Seymour. To see that special and additional content, go to our webpage at pbswisconsin.org and then click on the news page. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.